Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As I was listening to NPR News a minute ago, I was trying to think of some clever way to mention what an extraordinary World Cup championship match we had yesterday. One of the greatest fixtures ever. There is no clever way to do it except to say that watching Kylian Mbappe and Lionel Messi uh, go at each other was, I think, one of the most thrilling sports events uh, we could possibly have asked to see. So that's it. We're going to talk about politics, uh, but personally, I already miss uh, soccer, uh, and I'm looking forward to the club team starting again pretty soon. Okay, let's talk. Um, You know, last week, uh, if you were with us, we had three Republicans, Georgia Republicans on the show, the Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, uh, Jordan Fuchs, who is a Republican political consultant and also the Deputy Secretary of State, and Eric Tannenblatt, who's a longtime leader in Republican Party politics, not just in Georgia, but in national politics. And and we asked them to talk about what they see as the future for the Republican Party coming out of the midterm elections. And as we did that show, I said, we're going to do the same thing with some key Democrats. And that's what we'll do on the show today. Uh, Patricia Murphy, I'm glad you're with us for this show because um, you followed the midterms with so closely and spent so much time watching it. I'm sure you're interested in what they're all going to have to say, too. Oh, absolutely. This is a show where I know I will learn a lot from the other panelists. And I've just been watching politics from the outside in, and they've been living it from the inside out. So I look forward to this show a whole lot. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're also joined by Jen Jordan. Uh, who uh, made a name for herself in the state Senate uh, first in, uh, well, I shouldn't say first, but in a major way in her opposition to the uh, restrictive abortion law that moved through the legislature a couple of sessions ago. She went on to run for attorney general and by most accounts ran one of the best races on the statewide uh, ticket. And and Jen, we're really glad to have you back on the show. Uh, It's been a long time. It has, and I'll have to tell you that the one um, thing I heard the most on the campaign trail was that people like hearing me on Political Rewind, so um, I'm excited to be back with y'all. Well, good, and now that the uh, race is over, we can invite you more often. Sam Park, uh, Representative Sam Park, who is a Democrat from Lawrenceville, it's District, I think, 101, right, Sam? And you were just elected minority whip in the Democratic uh, uh, caucus in the State House. Congratulations on that, Sam. Thank you so much, Bill. Good morning. Always a pleasure to be on your show. My new district is 107. Um, 107. Yes, I am. Thank you. I am the Democratic whip. Yes. Um, and the first Asian American uh, to hold that position. And I think the first Asian American Democrat to be elected to the General Assembly. Right, Sam? That's correct. Thank you. Yes. We're also joined today by my old longtime friend, uh, Michael uh, Thurman. And Michael, I introduce you that way because I think what's interesting about having you on this show is that you represent a different generation of Democratic leaders. 
Um, you obviously uh, served as labor commissioner. Uh, you won a statewide race for that. You ran for the U.S. Senate in 2010. You've held um, many offices. And so in some ways, I think it's going to be interesting to hear your take on all of this as we talk with uh, some of the younger people coming up in the party, right? Well, I'm looking forward to it. The more things change, the more things remain the same. But I would like to uh, congratulate Representative Parks. I mean, he is the future of Georgia politics and more specifically Democratic politics. So congratulations, Representative. Thank you. Well, well, that said, um, let's do this. I'm going to ask each of you, I'm just go around and let you tell us all what were the most important lessons you think you learned uh, coming out of the midterms. And Sam Park, we'll start uh, with you since you've just got such a nice shout out from Mike Thurman. Um, as, as we said in the headlines to the show, obviously Democrats were thrilled to win uh, the Raphael Warnock Senate seat. To, to, uh, he defended it successfully, but the statewide races did not go particularly well. Um, so what are Democrats learning? What are you learning about what you need to do to position the party uh, in the two years uh, between now and 2024? Uh, sure. So election night in November was a very tough night for myself and a, a lot of our friends um, and a lot of the leaders who had done such incredible work in really empowering Georgia voters throughout the state. Um, and I, I'm just very happy and grateful that Reverend Warnock won re-election for six more years. And I think those two elections really reinforce the reality that Georgia remains a battleground state and will likely remain a battleground uh, for the next few election cycles um, and perhaps for the rest of the decade as well. And so with the reality that we are a battleground state, I have at least two or three big takeaways. Uh, the first being that as Georgia Democrats, we have to fight for every single vote and make our case to every single voter. Um, a lot of the primary uh, pieces of public policy that we've worked on does just that, um, expanding access to health care for all Georgians, making sure that public education is fully funded. You know, th that helps folks across the state of Georgia. And so I think we have to continue to work on those broad-based public policies and perhaps do a better job of messaging and building the infrastructure uh, necessary to ensure that that message is getting across to all voters. Um, second, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of, you know, this back and forth between, you know, the Stacey Abrams strategy as opposed to the Reverend Warnock strategy. Uh, again, going back to the first point, we have to do both. We have to build upon the work of both Stacey Abrams and Reverend Warnock. Um, because I think, at least from my purview, what we're experiencing, what we're seeing is a new Democratic Party that's beginning to emerge, um, one that is multiracial, one that is um, younger, in which it's really that generational change that's driving demographic change. But I think after the demographics, um, certainly this past election cycle is a reminder that demographics are not destiny, um, that they are an opportunity. Um, and again, I think for both political parties, uh, especially with the reality that change is the only constant, um, it's ultimately going to be up to both parties, I think, to make the, make the most of the opportunities they have um, to see and to uh, really demonstrate um, who is working for the best interests of all Georgia voters. Thank you for that. Jen Jordan, what, what did you learn in uh, running your race against an incumbent, Chris Carr, about the issues that you showcased? 
and um, how they were received by voters. And and should you decide to run again, and, and there are many people who think you should and will, how does what happened in this last cycle inform you moving forward? Look, I think we um, what I came away with is fundamentals matter, right? Um, candidates matter. Their campaigns matter. Um, and messaging matters. And, you know, it's one of those things where you've got to make the issues and what you care about and what your values are salient to people's lives and why, you know, if I vote for you, how are you going to make my life better, right? And drawing the lines very specifically, because I think we, we fall down and forget that we're running for office to govern and to do stuff for people. And sometimes you have to have, you have to lay it out very specifically for folks. And sometimes the message can be the same overall, but you've got to deliver it differently in different parts of the state. I mean, we do have an incredibly diverse state um, and we have to acknowledge that. And as we go forward, we really, um, you know, we really have to take that into account. And then finally, yeah, money still matters. Um, money absolutely matters. And if you don't have it, then you can't get your message out. If you can't get your message out, you can't get people to vote for you. So ultimately, it's all the things, right? It goes back to the fundamentals of what we know. Um, and if we're going to win in the future, you know, we've got to deliver on all fronts with respect to that. Michael Thurman, let me bring you in. Um, I think, Patricia, you were on the show the day that Mike Thurman, this was quite a while ago, sort of startled us by suggesting, mm, maybe I'm thinking about running for governor in 2022. Um, obviously, you did not do that. Uh, but how did Stacey Abrams, if you don't mind my being specific, uh, do in running her race? And where were the um, places where she could have done better? She lost by virtually eight points. <coughs> <clears throat> I had some technical difficulties, and I missed the first part of uh, your statement, Bill. But first of all, you know, <laughs> you're talking to a politician who's lost multiple elections over the years, right? And that's me. I've been around long enough to lose them and win them and lose them and win them again. Uh, Jen, you ran a great race, and someone was told me that you learn more from one defeat than you can from a thousand victories, right? And... Democrats would be smart to look very objectively at what happened. First of all, to celebrate Senator Warnock's victory, but look at what is really taking place at the state level, because state government is so critical uh, to what we do to our children, to our families. Uh, we look at what went well. Uh, why did Jen Jordan do so much better than some of the other candidates? And the next thing is, and it's somewhat in contradiction to what I said earlier, is, is deficit-driven strategies how to succeed. So let's build from the strength as opposed to weakness. And part of the autopsy or the after-action report is to look at the strength of what we did, uh, how well we succeeded, and more importantly, what we can build upon going forward. And the last thing is this, Bill. <laughs> you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. Patricia Murphy, who's a great, not just journalist, but a historian of Georgia politics. Reverend Warnock ran the campaign that won uh, in 2002 and 2006 and years before that. 
when Democrats were able to energize the base and attract independent, moderate voters. That's just how you win. You, you can't win Georgia any other way but that, at least for the foreseeable future. And what Representative Park say, debating that is a waste of time. You have to do both. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Michael. Patricia, jump in. So um, I agree with a lot of what's been said here. And I wrote a column that, um, uh, to Michael Thurman's point, Democrats really need to do some full searching about what's next because this was the year for them. They had their brightest stars. And I would put Jen Jordan um, at the top of that list uh, with B. Wynn and Stacey Abrams. Um, they had, uh, Jen Jordan didn't have as much money, but Stacey Abrams had more than $100 million, just national money flooding into this race. The state population is changing in the right direction for Democrats. That It's the population they want to be running with and appealing to, um, but to have such a huge loss. Um, means just something has to change. Democrats cannot have this kind of repeat performance and expect national donors to continue to be interested and the White House to continue to see it as um, competitive. And so to me, looking at these races, um, it's about kind of Democrats deciding who they are. And I think um, Representative Parks really got to that, but also who they want their voters to be. Um, The both and strategy is what works. I've talked to a lot of voters um, who felt like, uh, frankly, Stacey Abrams didn't want their vote um, because they were more moderate and more independent. That was their perception. I don't know that that was the reality because she was all over the state all the time with messages for everybody in the whole state. But that was how they felt. Um, and at the same time, uh, Governor Kemp was going into Asian communities, Latino communities, um, and really appealing to those communities in ways that uh, Republicans haven't before. And so um, I think 2024, although there are no statewide races here, that White House race is going to be hugely important because that will tell national Democrats, is Georgia worth fighting for anymore? Was 2020 just a Trump-driven uh, fluke, or is this a state that really matters? And I think Warnock told them, this is you can be anybody and win here. And so that's what a battleground state is. And so... Yeah, I just think Democrats need to just figure out who their voters are, really, because um, a lot of people felt like they weren't their voters. And that's not a good place to start from on Election Day. So, um, Patricia, is that the responsibility of the standard bearer, Stacey Abrams, in this case, who basically is was, of course, the most important candidate on the statewide ballot? sort of a shared responsibility. You know, those grassroots conversations that happen throughout the year um, where uh, local lawmakers like Representative Parks um, are really in there listening and talking to their voters and bringing those back to leaders. Um, But yes, you know, you look at somebody like Barack Obama, Democrats never could have cooked up that kind of magic on purpose. You know, they never could have been like, let's get somebody named Barack Obama to appeal to the entire country. You know, they never could have done that. Sometimes it's that leader that defines the party. Um, But you have to have a party willing to accept that message and put them forth and make them their champions. So, uh, Jen, and then Sam and Michael, I'd love to hear you weigh in on this. Um, 
Patricia alluded to a column that she had written about the outcomes of the election, things that she learned in the election. And one of them is the Warnock way, Jen, beat the Stacey Abrams playbook. And what Patricia says in her column is the age-old debate among Georgia Democrats about whether to appeal to moderates or progressives has a new answer thanks to U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock's campaign. Instead of choosing voters on the left or center, Warnock's team went to the left and center at the same time. And in the end, he outperformed the entire Democratic ticket in November and then went on to win uh, the runoff. And, and Michael Thurman basically talked a little bit about that. But, Jen, I'd love to get your take on that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, Patricia's right on, you know, she, she's got it down. I mean, look, I think part of our issue has been is that really things have been presented to Democrats as an either or, right? Either you do this or you do that. Um, and I think we see that that you just can't do that, especially in a state like Georgia, especially in a state where you are so close. I mean, 50-50, right? <laughs> so any little thing can kind of throw you over. Um, I will say this in terms of the Barack Obama comment. One thing we do need to be careful about, though, is that the party needs to be separate from whomever eventually is a standard bearer or, you know, every two to four years, we, we have to kind of get out of being just this cult of personality. I think what we saw after Roy Barnes lost um, was, you know, the party collapsed because the governor was the party. And so, you know, we spent all those years kind of building back up. And then, of course, we had Stacey Abrams come in in 2018 and raise a lot of money, a lot of attention, brought, you know, a lot of energy to the state and all that. And it kind of we kind of got back into that that situation again where, you know, the two are kind of basically the same. And so in order to sustain, you know, and build toward the future, you just can't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, and that, uh, you know, that's kind of a simplistic message. But but I think that's really the only way we can kind of move forward. Jen, if I could ask you uh, one more question before we move on. Um, you, as I said at the beginning of the show, you really became the uh, leading voice uh, for choice in the state when the debate on uh, that restrictive abortion, the heart, so-called heartbeat law, was being debated. You gained national attention uh, for that. All of the polls suggest that Georgia voters uh, agree that there should be uh, uh, more opportunities for women to choose abortion if they, sh- if they want to. Um, and yet... That issue turned out not to be, uh, I think, a driving force. Do you agree with that? Or do you think one of the reasons you performed better than most Democrats is that was at least in the background of your campaign? I think I think all of the above to some extent. I'll say that, you know, Kemp and his team were very disciplined in their messaging, which was not to talk about that. And look, when you have an incumbent governor who really is the person framing the message because he's the incumbent governor, if he's not talking about something, then that is not what is kind of the headline, right? I mean, he, he refused to address it time and again, and I know my opponent did too. So it's one of those things where if you're not talking about it and debating it, then voters don't even understand that it's really an issue. Um, and then secondarily, because it was not in effect, you know, since 19 when it was passed, I don't think that regular people in this state 
understand necessarily what the impact of the law is. And so it really did not have time to kind of permeate so that people really understand so that there could be a response to it. Um, and so and really, we should have we should have brought it more to the forefront. I mean, there's only I only had so much money and we can only talk about things so much. But if it's just me doing it or, you know, it, it's not real disciplined. Right. When you get out there, then it's a very muddled kind of message and, and people are mm. not quite sure what's going on. Um, okay, thank you for that. Sam, I want to add one more element again from Patricia's column. Uh, she points out that between 2018 and 2022, Georgia added 1.6 million new voters uh, to the rolls. They're one-fifth of eligible voters they were this year, and a lot of them are under 35, people of color. That is an enormous opportunity, an, an enormous opportunity for both Republicans and Democrats, but it's Democrats who generally have a message, I think you would say, that appeals to younger voters and people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, so absolutely. I mean, again, I think there's a lot of opportunities that Democrats mm-hmm. have uh, when it comes to uh, building multiracial coalitions and demonstrating what a multiracial democracy particularly in a southern state, looks like. Um, However, at the same time, I don't think we can ignore some of the macroeconomic challenges and the big headwinds that a lot of the statewide Democrats were experiencing this past election cycle, where, yes, the Dobbs decision was huge, um, a a massive uh, change in the political landscape. But at the same time, we were experiencing 40-year high inflation, in which while... Mm. Uh, reproductive justice and freedom was a high priority. It perhaps was not the highest, um, certainly when it comes to, again, the day-to-day um, uh, pain that folks were experiencing um, in their wallets. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I think going back to the earlier point that demographics aren't yeah. destiny, uh, while we have that opportunity with a changing electorate, um, we still have to do our job not to pick and choose our voters, um, but to find policies that best address uh, the problems that people are experiencing today from the pain of inflation and mitigating that economic harm to addressing, for example, affordable housing, um, looking at these issues from a, a spectrum, not necessarily from an ideological perspective, at least in my opinion, uh, but from more of a pragmatic perspective, um, in which, again, um, especially as a swing state, as a battleground state, um, at least in my mind, the path forward is going to be the party that has the best solutions to the problems that, that is then able to best message and convey the work that we are doing uh, to, to the largest electorate, right, the majority. Michael, you uh, have no problem winning re-election as CEO of DeKalb County. I think that's a fair statement uh, to make. What does it mean that when uh, when a great number of new voters are going to be DeKalb County voters, um, in terms of how you approach the younger uh, uh, people and people of color, and how, what does that mean for the whole Democratic Party in general? I'm proud of the fact that we believe that the, Demo- the cornerstone of the Democratic Party is in DeKalb. It's got a great county party with great county leaders. But, I, I, you know, and I'm a base plus guy. I was a base plus guy before base plus was cool. I'm back in the, <laughs> in the 20th century, right? That's how I won. But let me say this, though. National federal politics is a completely different animal from state politics. Yeah. And 
we should be careful. Stacey Abrams running against Brian Kemp is a totally different race than an incumbent senator running against a, you know, historically flawed one-time candidate. It just is. And taking nothing away from the great race that Senator Warnock ran, but Stacey Abrams was up against the guy who beat Trump. That's something. So the Democratic Party, I think, and just being real frank, we need to become much more efficient at state-level politics. And the former senator and the current state representative understand what I'm saying. You can nationalize Senate races. It's much more difficult to nationalize a state race. Mm-hmm. It's more about mm-hmm. it's hand-to-hand combat, more so than intercontinental missiles that come from California in state races, in uh, federal races. So one of the things we can learn if we are going to be successful is what do we need to do to be successful at state level, with state-level politics, with House members and Senate members and county commissioners and city councilmen. If there's one area we can improve upon, is bringing the races home. We've been extremely successful with presidential race and two Senate seats. No progress at the state level. And the question, and I maybe ask these legislators the question, and Patricia Murphy, what is the difference and why is that so? I, I love that question. I got to get to a break um, in a moment, and we can go, go to that question afterward. But, Patricia, before I do, um, Jack Ellis the former mayor of Macon, African-American Democratic mayor of Macon, listens to this show, I mean, every day. And he's always sending me emails <laughs> about the conversation. And in, in this case, I want to read you, uh, Patricia, what he said to me a minute ago. Bill, based on all statewide political offices being won by, won by Republicans, we Democrats must face the reality that Georgia is a red state and will be so at least until the next census of twenty. 30. Do you really think that uh, Jack is making an important point? Uh, you get to answer first, and then I'll ask everybody else after the break. <laughs> I, I don't know if I would call Georgia a red state. If it's a red state, Republicans win statewide no matter how bad their candidates are. It, but Herschel Walker was as bad as it gets. Um, and so, yeah. you know, Ralph Warnock in that way was just about the luckiest man in America this year and that he had an opponent like that. And it was still very close, which also should have worried Democrats. It doesn't feel as, as red as it used to. It still feels um, a little pink to me. I think somebody called it magenta. Um, uh, I don't think that's a great message for Democrats, even if it's true. <laughs> Nobody around the country will help them do anything for next the next 10 years if they have to wait for the census. Um, but yeah. you go around and it does, it, but it feels more competitive to me than it has since 2002. And you can feel that when you go to Gwinnett County, when you go to Cobb County, it's a different state than it used to be. And I think that's hugely, hugely important. I think that's right. And I'd love to get everybody else to weigh in on that. But let's do this. Let's get to a break and we'll be back with more in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. 
Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'll reintroduce the panel in just a moment, but I want to tell you a little bit about tomorrow's show, which I'm really excited about. Um, we're going to talk to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacy Schiff. She has written literally a thrilling new biography of Samuel Adams. And the point of her book is to say that Samuel Adams does not get the credit he deserves for in many ways being the driving force in pushing independence. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to talking with her and uh, I hope you'll join us for that conversation. All right. So Patricia Murphy is with us, Jen Jordan, Sam Park, and Michael Thurman. Before the break, uh, I mentioned that Jack Ellis, former mayor of Macon, uh, Michael says that he thinks it's we still have a red state. And I think some of what he was talking about when he mentions 2030 is gerrymandering. Well, yes, and, and shout out to my old friend Jack Ellis down in middle Georgia, not south Georgia. He taught me that. Making his middle joy. <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's true. What, what he's saying is similar to what at the state level it might still It is red at the state level. Could it be both Patricia Murphy, Sam, and Jen? Could it be red and pink? At the, at the, it could be pink at the federal level. But at the state level, who can argue that it's not a red state? Sam? So I, I would disagree with the assertion that Georgia is a red state, certainly. Um, a good argument could be made that it's pink or magenta, as uh, Patricia Murphy mentioned. Um, however, I think if you do look at the state legislature, you, I think it's a great example of how the state is rapidly changing. Um, yes, um, you know, when I was first elected, or yes, Republicans have a majority, but Democrats are still certainly making inroads. And if you look at the Democratic caucus, um, we represent the diversity of the state, um, both in terms of geography, gender, race, ethnicity, age, socioeconomic status, the whole nine yards. And so I, I very much view the Georgia House Democratic Caucus as an opportunity in which we'll see uh, the, this new majority in the state properly reflected as our representative democracy ought to permit. Um, but without a doubt, there are certainly uh, structural impediments that we do have to overcome um, a lot of, and we'll see whether or not um, the demographic changes are able to overcome a lot of the uh, racial and partisan gerrymandering that we saw at the state level. But as an example, when I was first elected six years ago in 2016, I unseated a three-term Republican chairwoman in a plus-eight Republican district. And so, again, going back to that earlier notion, which Patricia mentioned in her column, that change is the only constant, I, I certainly would not think or write Georgia off as a red state for the rest of the decade. And without a doubt in my mind, I think there's certainly a path forward to building a new majority in the state house. Sam, were you able to win that race because of the changing demographics of your district? I think yes, in part. Um, but the other part was also talking with uh, Democratic voters who had not turned out frequently and also reaching out to folks across the political spectrum. Okay. Um, Jen, I, I want to, as, as you well know, in her epic uh, Twitter stream, 
uh, Lauren Groargo last week uh, had a lot to say about what happened to her candidate, uh, Stacey Abrams' campaign. And one of the things she said is not to be denied, I don't think, because Brian Kemp, for that matter, Chris Carr, your opponent, um, other Republicans on the ticket, stayed away from Donald because they had established themselves as anti-Trump in terms of working with him to overturn the uh, 2020 election, they presented themselves as moderates, which is one of the reasons perhaps that they won a lot of crossover votes from people who typically would think of themselves as Democrats. And then, of course, on top of that is the incumbency factor. What, what do you, and by the way, Lauren blamed a lot of this on the media, which I think was really incorrect, uh, but because we never stopped saying that Brian Kemp is a conservative, that's for sure. But what do you think about that, Jen? No, I mean, I think, look, I think that it's that's what I saw at the national level when people would talk to me about the race and, and, and particularly about the governor's race. They would talk about Trump and how great it was, right, that that Trump, you know, he could come in and then that's really going to help Stacey and all this kind of stuff. And what I would say to them is I, I don't think you get it here that they're, you know, these are different candidates than just your generic Republican Trump candidate anywhere else in this country. And in fact, people in my district, which is kind of that suburban area, right, um, of Atlanta, did give Kemp tremendous credit and did give Raffensperger tremendous credit and actually voted in the Republican primary to get them over the line. Because for them, their primary issue was about, you know, basically, you know, killing Trump, like the the political machine that was the Trump machine. And that was their number one priority that that really eclipsed everything else. And I think it was those voters that really were the ones that put Kemp over the line. Um, those voters are the ones who would tend to vote Democratic, right? Mm. But they were giving the incumbents, they were giving them real credit um, for, for standing up to Trump. But the problem is we didn't do a good enough job, I don't think, talking about the policies, because you're right. I mean, Kemp, I mean, he's Trumpian in terms of policies. I mean, even mm-hmm. if Trump didn't support him. Yeah, I think that um, Abrams just really struggled and B. Wynn also really struggled in their races to find a way to um, acknowledge or even give credit to Kemp and Raffensperger and also say, but there are also these other things. Um, Abrams, uh, you know, called Kemp an extremist, and B. Wynn said Raffensperger was no friend to Georgia voters. And I talked to Democrats who said, well, he kind of is. <laughs> I mean, he kind of did that thing that I wanted him to do. Um, in fact, he did the only thing, Raffensperger, that Democrats wanted him to do, which was not to turn the apparatus over to Donald Trump. And you could see the frustration inside, especially Abrams' camp, that they're saying, you're just saying he's concer- he's a moderate. We're saying, no, we're just saying what happened. And many voters saw that as being reasonable, not moderate. And there's a big difference. Um, and so I do think that had Democrats pushed harder on the abortion message, not Democrats, but maybe the Abrams campaign, and focused really, really like a laser on just two or three issues, economy, abortion, democracy, that's really where you can get it. There were about a hundred, literally a hundred messages and policies from Abrams because she's brimming over with ideas. Um, I'll, I'll tell just a quick anecdote. Michael Thurman, I think, um, did something that I will never forget, and it wasn't a message event. He did these monthly grocery giveaways 
handing out mm. groceries to Democratic voters. It, he is not supported in DeKalb because he's a Democrat. It's because he's in that community doing things that are visible and that matter to people. And so that is the type of thing that I will never forget seeing an elected official do. And I didn't see those moments with the Abrams campaign. Michael, I think Patricia had just made a really important point. And really, Jen and Sam have been a little bit uh, more subtle in how they've described this. The Abrams campaign was all over the map. Uh, and, and she's right. There weren't just a couple of strong messages that uh, uh, she gave voters a, a, a reason to vote for her for. Every day there was something new, while Kemp, as we've said many times on this show, ran a very disciplined campaign. It was about job development, you know, economic development uh, of various kinds. Uh, so that seems to me to be one of the big learning lessons for Democrats and really for both parties moving forward, Michael. Well, absolutely. Thank you, Patricia. It's, it's a partnership with faith leaders. And actually, some Republicans picked up some groceries, too. So, <laughs> you, so but it, it's one of the most uh, inspiring things I get to do. But I want to go back to something I said. Now, the only reason I tried to bifurcate pink and red is creating a strategy to win. If you look at state-level politics, if you look at redistricting, you look at and who controlled it, and you look at who's in office, you can have a red state strategy even in a pink state at the state level. What I'm asking my state-level leaders and the people I admire is to look at the battlefield where you have to go and deploy and think about the issues. Let me just go, Patricia, one other issue is crime. We did not come up, I think, with a coherent message on crime. And that hurt Democrats. And we have to be very forthright in saying that we're going to do whatever is necessary to protect law-abiding citizens from criminals. And we just have to say it and believe it and legislate towards it. My number one job is to do everything I can to try to keep the citizens, residents of DeKalb County safe. It's not even a Democrat or public. So, but we have to be honest and say it and proud of the fact that we're going to support men and women in uniform. We're going to protect uh, grandmothers from robbers and carjackers, and that we will invest money and time and resources to do it. That hurt us during this election cycle. I don't know, Patricia, what you think, because you are out there. I totally agree. I was in Rome talking to a Democratic elected official who said um, that particularly Abrams' statement that she was willing to defund the police, you know, under certain circumstances, it was sort of clipped and spliced from a CNN interview, but the Kemp campaign ran that over and over and over. Um, and so people who saw that commercial left feeling like, there's not a democratic answer on crime. It's that one, that one single ad that people brought up to me many times. And crime is a statewide issue, as we all know. Um, and people are worried about it. And so I, I do think that crime was the voters' number two message issue, for sure. Um, Jen, before, I've got to get to a break, but I'd be interested in your take on that. Is there a reason that Democrats are a little nervous about being talking about crime, getting tough on crime, as Michael Thurman suggests. Is there a fear somehow that it might alienate 
uh, some voters, particularly black voters, who um, are not as, uh, uh, you know, welcoming of the police in their communities. What, what's your sense of that? Look, I, I'm just going to be the amen corner um, for the CEO because I was very frustrated we weren't talking about it in, in large part because my whole message was, who's been in charge? Like they talk about record crime and all this horrible stuff going on, and it is statewide. It isn't like an Atlanta issue. It is a statewide issue. And so the whole idea that Republicans were able to say, you know, somehow it's Democrats' fault when they're the ones that have been in charge, I was just like flummoxed. I was like, this is crazy. Why aren't we responding to this? And look, in terms of black voters, black voters are just like anybody else. They want to be safe. Right. And they want to hear that their elected officials are going to do something to make that happen, especially especially when we're talking about such a really uneasy time right now. Oh, all right. I got to get to the final break of the show. Uh, As we come back, I want to talk about a couple things that may be happening in 2024 that could give Democrats uh, a real boost as the presidential election approaches in two years. You're listening to Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, as you know, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, wants to change their primary presidential primary calendar schedule. Uh, they are tired of Iowa and New Hampshire, largely white states, which don't represent uh, the bulk of Democratic voters. Uh, they want to move them out of the uh, front-running uh, positions, and they want Georgia to be one of the first states uh, that votes. Now, we had a debate in real time on the air about whether that's something that Brad Raffensperger, as Secretary of State, if they move forward on this, can agree to himself. Mary Margaret Oliver was on that show. She went back to the Legislative Council because she suggested that maybe you need the legislature to approve it. I don't know which is true, but what is the importance of Georgia moving up to the top of the heap? So I think it would be hugely important. Um, it would... Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, it could really change the people who are the the people who are winnowed down as the options for the country. Um, it makes no sense for Iowa and New Hampshire to have such an outsized role, especially with the Democratic Party, um, because you just travel to those states and it's truly and literally all white people. It's just about 97 percent white. That's not the Democratic electorate. That's not the country. Um, Georgia is so representative, I feel like, of the country and where it's going. Um, and in terms of what it, what does it do for the state, it would immediately elevate people like Sam Park, Michael Thurman, Jen Jordan, um, Jordan, excuse me, um, so sought after for their endorsements and their input and how do we win the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would just put Georgia really on the map as a battleground. Again, Georgia really needs to perform extremely well for Democrats in the White House race in 2024, but moving the primary up would just immediately change the way um, elections are conducted here. It would be so great for the state. I would love it as a reporter here, obviously. Um, But I think it makes a much bigger difference than most uh, average Joes around the state realize because it puts such a spotlight on the state. And we're ready for that, as we've proven many times, I think. Sam Park, uh, Governor Zell Miller, did it in 1992. He was a big supporter of Governor Bill Clinton. He wanted that our primary to come early on, right out of New, after New Hampshire. And he, he did just that and it propelled Clinton toward the nomination. So what about uh, Georgia in 2024? Uh, so, 
to the impact that Georgia voters has had on national politics, particularly with the elections of Senators Ossoff and Warnock, um, it certainly makes sense that Georgia should be put up uh, toward the front. Uh, that said, if it does require state legislative action, I don't necessarily see Republicans taking any action whatsoever uh, that would benefit Democrats or the Democratic ticket. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it all plays out. Either which way, I think Georgia will remain a key battleground state um, that will have an outsized influence for years to come. Jen? Yeah, no, look, I think Republicans are going to be for it. At the end of the day, do y'all know how much revenue will come in because of it? Um, How many people will come to the state and spend money? I mean, it would just be absolutely incredible. And so just from an economic development perspective, it would be incredible from um, from a campaign infrastructure place. You know, when I talk about campaign matters, We've had a real issue in in terms of having a professional kind of campaign class, right, that can go in and really run these campaigns professionally. And so, you know, having an early primary like that, it would it would just, you know, I think both parties would absolutely benefit from it and definitely the people of the state. It would just be incredibly cool, right? I I apologize for interrupting you. Um, Michael, I think Jen Jordan makes a really good point. Uh, Brian Kemp is positioning himself as a power in the National Republican Party. Uh, now, the RNC has not said they're going to change their schedule. But if they decide to do that, uh, Kemp puts himself in a position of really having kind of power that Patricia was talking about with people like Jen Jordan, Sam Park, and you in the Democratic Party. So it makes sense for Kemp to go along with this. Oh, absolutely. And he's thinking about four years from now. Uh, you know, he's a young man, so he's thinking about what next for him. And to Jen Jordan's point, that'll help us. we got to build the state infrastructure. I'm just telling you, we have to build it in terms of campaign apparatus, uh, st- strategy, uh, resources. All of those things need to be done, and this would only support that. Patricia, we're not hearing you. You're, you're, are you muted? Oh, I'm sorry. That was in case dogs or children were screaming. <laughs> um, we, uh, we love dogs and children. Don't, so no worries, well, I've Patricia. Got, I've got plenty over here making noise. <laughs> um, but from a policy perspective, the reason there is ethanol and gas, 10% <clears throat> ethanol and gas, is because Iowa goes first. And anybody running for president talks to all of the Iowa lawmakers, and they're like, how about we review the, you know, the ethanol standard? And they're like, forget about it. So there are real policy implications to a state going first and presidential candidates needing to make commitments on policies um, that actually affect them for in a big way for a long term. So that would be another way it would really um, benefit the state. Okay, we've only got a few, <coughs> excuse me, we've only got a few minutes, but Michael Thurman Brad Raffensperger wants to end runoffs in the state of Georgia. Who does that benefit, Republicans, Democrats, or is it a neutral uh, move? Democrats should proceed with caution. Uh, just because he says it, we shouldn't rush to embrace it, because guess what happens? They will add additional amendments and ideas to that bill. It won't be just a bill about runoffs. I'm just telling you. And if we've already endorsed it, how do you unendorse the concept or endorse a part of the bill and not other parts of the bill? Be cautious, be careful, be analytic, 
and then make a decision. Jen? Yeah, I mean, it's always interesting to me how uh, the law starts to change when the numbers change, right? It's kind of like absentee voting. It used to be kind of the go-to for Republicans. And then when the numbers started to change, they wanted to change the law. Look, I, I, I I would proceed with caution, but at the same time, like, I don't, Look, I, I think runoffs are, are not necessarily great because then you have really big decisions being made by a very small uh, portion of the electorate. And um, and I just don't I just don't think that works. I mean, I think there are things we can talk about in terms of ranked choice voting and all that. Uh, but having run a one off, run one and one one, um, they're not fun. And they cost a lot of money. And so, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I may be in a brass corner with respect to this. Uh, Sam? I'm, I'm, I'm open to looking at different structural reforms that would make the election system um, more accessible and more representative of a majority. Certainly when it comes to any sort of legislative proposal or initiative, it would have to be carefully reviewed um, and analyzed in order for it to proceed. But uh, you know, with 79 Democrats in the House, um, where we're only 12 seats away from a majority, um, hopefully that also ensures greater negotiating leverage in which there is an opportunity for bipartisan compromise to make it better for Georgians to access the ballot box. Michael Thurman, last word on this from you. Well, I want to go back to something. I, I can't leave without saying this, Bill. African Americans do not support crime or criminals. We are often the victims of the crime and the criminals. I've been victimized myself. What we do not support is violation of rights or police brutality, Mm -hmm. but we want to be safe. Look at the lady with the two teenagers killed this weekend. Two women were saying that they are just afraid in their own homes, that they are afraid for themselves and their children. Michael Thurman, you get almost the last word, but before we leave you, Patricia Murphy, you have worked seven days a week, long hours covering the midterm election <laughs> and the runoff. What are you look? What's on the horizon for you? What are you going to be doing next with politics? The legislature? I'll do the legislature, and then I will start planning ahead for my summer. Um, I'm so excited about this. My summer politics road trip again. I learned so much talking to people who are not up for election. Um, in towns and cities around the state. And so I'm going to do that again as well. And just just take a minute. I'm very excited. Jen Jordan, another race ahead of you, do you imagine? Some, we're not trying to pin you down, but um, what do you I, think? Look, I'm, I, I, my whole thing was to get my kid into college, and um, he is going to Boston University next fall. Oh, so we congratulations. Are so I know, I know. Good I'm for you. a little sad, but we've got that down. But I do want to clarify, I am not running against John Ossoff in the U.S. Senate race. Um, yeah, I, I get <laughs> that. I just want to be I get very, that. very clear. All right. Jen Jordan, Jen Jordan, our daughter went to Emerson College in Boston. So anything you want to know about what it's like to have a college student in Boston, give me a call. We'll talk to you about it. And congratulations on your son. That's it. Thank We're you. out of time. Uh, Jen Jordan, Sam Park, Michael Thurman, Patricia Murphy. I, I love this conversation, and it was a great way to start our week on Political Rewind. Tomorrow, as I said, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Stacy Schiff on the extraordinary life of Samuel Adams. I'll see you all tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care, and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.